verse 32. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. How are you doing this week? Okay. Good. Just racing around this morning for some reason. Yeah. Is the air running? I believe I hear it running, yes. Okay. And the fans are up. Where's uh, missing a hymnal here? Pardon me? Hymnal. You want me to dig one up for you? Yes. See that there before. Why am I always looking for a block box to clean it? You sure it's you sure it's me?
And should he get one on his chair or no? No, I'm gonna bring it up on myself.
Doing good, huh? You look nice. Thank you. How's your hubby doing? He's doing real good. He's here. I see he is. Yep. How's he doing? He's tired. Uh -huh. He's really tired. That goes with the condition, I think. Yep. Yes. Good morning. A couple of announcements that we have today. Everybody has a bulletin, I trust. Okay. Uh, fast forward down to number five. No evening service for the rest of the month. And we will resume our evening services on October 9th at 6 p.m. Uh, reason is our Sunday school coincides with our evening services. And we will be postponing classes until that date of October 9th. We have a couple visitors uh, with us today. The Zigglers are here. Welcome back. Nice to see you folks again. And uh, if you get a chance, catch up with Jennifer and see how she's doing. Tom is back. Welcome, Tom. Good to see you again. You're looking well. Any word on the Lewis's from anybody? Terry, have you heard anything? Dale? No? Okay. Well, we need to keep them still in prayer. I think they still have the COVID, don't they? Yeah, I think they're still under the COVID uh, quarantine, so. They're doing? One blessing. Yeah. You just had sinus problems, right? So sinus. Yeah. He's got sinus problems, yeah, but not COVID. Mm -hmm. Any other uh, notifications or comments? Okay. Go ahead. Dana is still struggling with the cold in the moment. She's having, still having breathing problems. She did get a nebulizer and stuff, which seems to be helping a little bit, but I think she's a little scared of maybe having. Is, is she still in like a self-imposed quarantine or? Well, she's out of quarantine, but if she tries to do anything, she just gets right back down again. So she's trying to stay down and trying to use a nebulizer and all that stuff. A lot of mucus and stuff like that. One of the insidious effects of the COVID is yeah. it leaves long-lasting ramifications such as different types of illnesses and sensitivities. So we'll keep gaining our prayers. Dan holding up okay? 
stand in our prayers as well. Anyone else? Thought maybe I heard something else on there. I was just asking about Dana at the same time. Oh, <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, if there's nothing else, our uh, scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 32. And that will be verses 11 through 21. Would you stand with us as we begin our service and opening prayer? Dale, may I ask you to lead us in prayer?
take your brown hymnals, sorry. Take your brown hymnals and turn to 178, 178 in the brown.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 20. And it'll be verses 1 through 16. And when you come to that, please stand with us. agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to, the, to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were <coughs> hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a, den a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work of, and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Ask that the Lord bless his word today. Take your brown handle again and turn to 195. 195.
Our text this morning is Matthew 20. In this series, the gospel that Jesus preached, our last study dealt with the unmerciful servant. The background of that is why did Peter ask his question about how many times he should forgive his brother? Well, if you look in the text, it's because Jesus provoked the question by his teaching concerning how two brothers in the faith are to resolve their differences. Verse 15. So Peter was listening. And he put the question to Jesus. Well, how many times am I supposed to do this? Jesus gave the procedure that he's to go to the person privately. That failing, he's to go with two or three witnesses. That failing, he's to tell it to the church for corporate action. 
Now, Peter's question was the logical conclusion on reconciliation, for there could be no restoration of friendship apart from forgiveness on the part of the offended party. And so his questions were directly related to what Jesus was teaching. But Peter wanted to restrict the times forgiveness was granted to, well, let's say seven. That sounds like a good number. Forgive the guy seven times after that. Eh. Jesus' answer. This is a direct thing to Peter. I tell you, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 or 70 times seven, which is a Hebraism. It's saying, my answer to you is that you're to forgive. It's an unlimited time of forgiveness. It's forgiveness without counting. We learn the lesson that it's wrong to place limitations on kindness and mercy. Forgiveness within the body of Christ is to be a picture of the forgiveness of God to us through Christ. The second part of Jesus' answer was the parable of the unmerciful servant. The servant forgiven millions and is a picture of all of us who have experienced the mercy of God. So we must be forgiving as God has been to us. And if we're not, there is the terrible consequence of hell's torture. Jesus says it. We must be conformed to the pattern of Christ. God gives us time to grow in grace and knowledge. That's true. But grow we must. Maturity in spiritual understanding and practice is not optional. We are to grow up. In the faith. That's one of the great concerns. That pastors including me have. With regard to modern day Christians. I'm a Christian they say. Yet they're not one inch taller in their faith. Than the day they said I do. It didn't grow. Hardly see them in church. When they do show up, it's Christmas or Easter. God is kind of put on the back burner. And yet they say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. Well, that Christ is the Christ of the Bible. And he lays out a whole responsibility for us. To grow in the grace and knowledge of him. Maturity in spiritual understanding and practice is not optional. It's not optional. It's a sign that real faith is there. Just think of it on the natural level. If your children did not grow physically an inch or two or whatever per year, right on up into adulthood, you would have met the doctor. 
and you would be wondering, what's wrong? I feed them three meals a day. They get plenty of exercise. They're off to school. They're learning their ABCs. Yet they're not growing. He, she's not much taller than first grade. Something's wrong, yeah. And we can have the same problem spiritually. Well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, well, have you grown since the day you professed faith in Christ? That's the question. Well, today we come to the parable of the vineyard workers. And look at the story of the landowner. So here we are again in the agricultural motif, which, as we have seen, was one of our Lord's most popular settings for his teaching. This time, the parties concerned consist of a landowner who owns a vineyard and the migrant workers he hired to harvest the grapes. From the context, this was not some backyard operation. It was a vast vineyard covering acres and acres of grapevines. Now, we know that this operation was huge because beginning early in the morning, then again at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., again at the sixth hour, that's noon, and then at the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., <clears throat> and finally, at the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., this landowner returned to the marketplace to hire more workers. So as the day went on, he's out there beating the bushes, trying to get more workers to come in and help with the harvest. This is not a little farm. It's not a little operation at all. It's huge. And it's interesting to note that the workers whom this landowner hired were said to be standing in the marketplace, let me read it for you, doing nothing. Doing nothing. Really. Verse 3, verse 6. Now it isn't that these men were lazy. But as stated by one of the workers, verse 7, well, no one has hired us. That's why we're doing nothing. No one has hired us. Such is often the case with migrant workers. They're at the low end of the employment scale, and they only work when there are crops to pick and someone hires them. That's it. There's no job security. There's no steady paycheck. There's no general, generally uh, covered benefits. Making ends meet is erotic at best. Family life is in shambles. Might be just dad that goes, keeps going from farm to farm while the kids are back home wherever that might be. They're always moving to the next location, to the next farm, to the next crop, even out of the country. These people travel from state to state following the harvest season. 
One other observation may be valid, and that is that these people, because of their hard life, often tend to be hard people. That is, they are not full of all of the niceties with which we associate people who live in one locale and work at one steady job. They're generally uneducated. That is why they work at the blood and sweat jobs. Their hands become callous, and so does their hearts. Their employers, too, tend to be mercenary men who work them to death and pay starvation wages. No wonder these people often have a chip on their shoulder. We observe some interesting things about this landowner and his demeanor with his workers. For one thing, he sought them out. Hmm. They didn't seek him. These were people out of work who were simply milling around the marketplace, not knowing where their next paycheck was going to come from. But even so, they were now not out beating the bushes looking for work. Secondly, this landowner paid a fair wage to these workers. Verse 2, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day. A denarius was the usual day's wage for workers. For example, a Roman soldier was paid one denarius per day. A denarius was the smallest silver coin in the Roman Empire, but it was pure silver. Matthew 22 verse 19 indicates that though the coin was the common means of payment in the empire, the emperors of Rome had their inscription fixed upon it. So it was the coin used to pay one's taxes to Rome. And then thirdly, this landowner made no delay in paying these workers. At the end of the workday, he instructed his foreman, pay them their wages, verse 8. The landowner was well positioned financially. He didn't have to sell off part of the harvest crop in order to pay the workers for that day, thus delaying their pay. No, none of that. He had enough cash reserve to pay as they worked. Now, these workers may have needed that money that day to feed their families. And the landowner was conscious of their plight. And then fourthly, this landowner had a generous heart. The workers hired in the 11th hour, that's about 5 p.m., were given the same pay as those who had been hired early in the morning. A denarius, a day's pay, for a few hours' work. Hmm. The fact that they had been hired late into the day did not mean that their needs were any less than those hired earlier in the day. And the landowners sensed that they were just as hungry, just as ill-clad as their co-workers. 
And so his heart went out to them, and they received the same money. Now, what was the workers' reaction? <clears throat> well, chapter 20, look at verses 9 through 12. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous. So the last will be first. And the first will be last. As we listen to these workers complain. We probably would agree that they. They make some very. Um, convincing arguments. As to Why they should receive more pay than those hired at the 11th hour. It's true that the men hired last had only worked about one hour, verse 12. This tells me that the migrant workers worked the fields until about 6 p.m., or we would say sundown. It is also true that the burden of the work was borne by those who had been in the vineyard since early morning, verse 12. It makes sense that a man harvesting grapes for 10 hours has done more than a man who has worked one hour. It's also accurate to say that the workers hired first, or even at 9 a.m., or at noon, yeah, they had borne the heat of the day. So their day was long. Their work made more laborious by the oppressive heat. The 5 p.m. workers had been spared all of that. But not those hired in the morning. Their final point was also true, namely, that the landowner, by paying 
the five o'clock workers of Denarius and the all-day workers no more had made the latter hirees equal to them. They had received as much money as if they had worked in the vineyard all day long. So from their viewpoint, these early workers had a right to grumble against the landowner. Verse 11. They probably felt that here was another landowner trying to stick it to the workers. And so they began to protest. How would you have answered them? Well, here's how Jesus answered, answered them. Look at verse 13. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first last. First thing to note is that the landowner addressed the issues of fairness. Because fairness was the underlying gripe in these men's minds. I mean, how is it fair that a man who has worked one hour in the cool of the day gets paid the same amount of money as the man who has worked from dawn to dusk in the heat of the day? The landowner's response was, I am not being unfair to you. How so? Didn't you agree to work for one denarius? Of course, the landowner was right. Verse 2 tells us the landowner agreed to pay them a denarius for the day. If he agreed, there was some kind of negotiation that went on. And the final wage was the result of mutually agreed upon settlement between management and labor. And if the workers did not like it, they didn't have to agree to work the vineyard. The landowner had paid them the agreed upon wage. And so he was fair and just in his dealings. He had not tried to cheat them out of the agreement. Secondly, the landowner told the complainers to take their money and be on their way because they had no case. It was, in fact, his desire to give those hired at the end of the day the same wage, a decision which was his alone to make, since the money was his to do with as he pleased. Verse 15, here again, the landowner was right. Verse 
And then finally, the landowner addressed the real problem these workers were having. Verse 15. Are you envious because I am generous? Ooh. In other words, instead of being happy for these late hired workers because they too could now supply their hungry families with needed food, the ones hired earlier in the day were envious of the landowner's generosity. And may I say his selective generosity, since when they expected to receive more for their labor, verse 10, the landowner did not accommodate them. And so they were put out. It's, it's obvious. If the landlord was disposed to be generous with his money, why not be generous to them as well? That's the way they thought. They envied the good fortune of their fellow workers and objected to the landowner's selective generosity. This brings us then, what was the point of the parable? Verse 15, verse 16 rather. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like, verse 1. Okay. But what does it all mean? That brings us then to the meaning of the parable. Number one, injustice is never an issue for those who reap the benefits of the kingdom of heaven because God's kingdom favors are not a matter of fairness but a matter of mercy. It's a matter of mercy. This landowner paid the people who worked but one hour the same wages he paid the people who agreed to work all day for a silver denarius. When the foreman was paying everyone, he began with the workers who were hired last and proceeded to those hired first, verse 8. And this gave time for the first workers to observe that those hired in the eighth hour were paid one denarius. Upon seeing this, they began to do some mathematical calculations and some speculative reasoning that went something like this. Hmm. If these that had worked but one hour were paid a denarius for their labor, seems reasonable that the landowner will pay us more for having worked a longer period of time. And they were shocked and they were outraged when they received no more than the workers who had worked but one hour. There are people who are like these first workers everywhere in our society. You may be one of them. You want to enter into a contract with God for his favors. You plan to do a day's work for a day's wage. 
You will pray to God. You will attend church. You'll throw some money in the offering box. Maybe you will sing in the choir, clean the building, commit to reading a chapter of the Bible each day. You promise not to cuss, not to use obscene language. In exchange, God will allow you to enter into his kingdom, to enjoy his salvation. He will bless you with good things and a happy home in this life and eternal bliss in the next. And this kind of mentality is saying to God, God, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. I will do my part, and you do your part, and we will both enjoy a win-win situation. But this parable of the vineyard workers demonstrates that God's kingdom is not like that. If, like the laborers who were hired early in the morning, an agreement is entered into involving so much work for so much wage, that agreement nullifies the grace of God and locks the recipient into the sum total of his labor. Galatians 2 16, Paul puts it this way, By observing the law, no one will be justified. These first workers agreed to work the vineyard for a denarius. They entered into a contract, a day's labor for one silver coin. Eula observed that none of the other groups which were hired at 9 a.m., Noon, 3 p.m., 5 p.m., none of them had a work agreement. All these latter groups had was the assurance of the landowner. Let me read it for you. Verse 4. I will pay you whatever is right. So they entered the vineyard with nothing more than the bare, naked promise of the landowner to do right by them. They labored by faith that when the day's work was complete, the landowner would not cheat them. When the accounts were settled, the first workers got what they bargained for, but their ironclad agreement also excluded them from the landowner's generosity. The other workers who had worked by faith were showered with more than they could dream of. So as the scenario goes, being first isn't always best. Striking a bargain with God may result in more than you bargained for. Not because God is a cheat, but because your labor contract mentality limits the scope 
of the blessings of God. People who make deals with God are never cheated, but they are always disappointed. Because their deals leave no room for the generosity of God. Note that of all the workers in this story, only those hired first are instructed by the landowner. Take your pay. And go. Verse 14. They must leave the vineyard. The other workers, though last, are elevated to first. The generosity of God has done that for them. Their one hour of work did not merit them a full day's pay. That's true. God's grace always lifts the lowly to unforeseen heights. The kingdom blessings, brethren, are for those who enter it by faith. If you think you can make a deal with God, you'll get what your labors deserve, but no more. And even receiving your due will make you grumble and complain. Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day, who liked to sound trumpets and draw attention to themselves as they gave their money to the poor. They wanted to be honored by men, you say. But Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. They've received their reward in full. What? Matthew 6, verse 2. What do you mean they received their reward? In full, he tells us. They wanted to be noticed and recognized as benefactors to the poor. They wanted to be honored by men for their philanthropic endeavors. That's what they wanted when they sounded the trumpets. And that's what they got. Exactly what they bargained for. But brethren, how much better to be honored by God, to be rewarded by the Lord of glory who witnesses our secret love gifts to the poor and needy, Matthew 6, verse 2 and following. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Grace is superior to your earnings, to your labor your work ethic. Secondly, this parable teaches us that God's kingdom blessings, salvation, are for him to bestow as he sees it because, guess what? It's his kingdom. That's what he's referring to. Isn't the money mine? You know, this estate runs on my fortune. Isn't the money mine? The implication, can I do with it what I want to do with it? The universal principle is this. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what I own? What's mine? 
verse 15. And if this applies to us as human beings and the things that we own, how much more so with God? You see, the whole idea that God is somehow obligated to sinful creatures to be merciful, to be gracious, is to destroy mercy and grace completely. Mercy and grace, in order to be mercy and grace, can never be obligatory. Never. Never. You owe me mercy. You owe me grace. No. That just doesn't compute. You say, well, what about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for sinners? Doesn't that obligate God to save people who ask him? Well, not at all. God may save, and he does place conditions of sincerity on the asking, conditions of faith on the asking, Conditions of repentance from sin. Conditions of seeking after holiness. These very things he requires, he grants to whom he wills. And it is his movement of the heart that draws sinners to his son. John 6 verse 37. As to just who it will be that God bestows his grace upon That decision is his, not yours, not mine. So the grumbling vineyard workers didn't much appreciate the landowner's generosity towards the workers who had worked one hour. In fact, they were envious of those workers and were actually complaining against the landowner's generosity. Verse 15. I hate to say it, but I will say it. People today do the same thing with regard to the real issue here. The salvation of God and the generosity he bestows on some, but not on others. His saving of some and his passing by of others. And Paul addresses this complaint in Romans 9 where the principle is asserted. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Verse 18. And then Paul, anticipating from his readers some kind of protest about that, goes on to say, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Paul's answer. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay? Pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. Romans 9, verse 18 and following. You know, that's very similar 
to the landowner's reply to the grumblers in this story. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own? Sounds like the potter. In our day of asserting human rights, people find this extremely offensive to hear that before God, they have no rights. Before God. No rights. They can make no legitimate demands. They can compel no obligation from God. Nor can they make deals with God. Nor can they manipulate God. Or bribe Him. Or threaten Him. Or shame Him into doing what they want. None of that. It makes them mad. But God can do, and He does do, what He wants with sinners. Get it now. Here is the reason you have no right before God. As a sinner, as a breaker of God's law, you forfeit all of your rights to his promises of life and blessing and goodness. The day you join the rank of sinners is the day you lost all claims upon God's goodness. End result? The kingdom blessings are God's to bestow on whom he wills, however he wills. And all your grumbling won't change the fact that God has determined that the last will be first and the first last. His determination. That's a hard pill to swallow for some people. They don't like a God like that. They want a God that they can manipulate. I want God to do what I want. Not what he wants. What I want is best. I know best. The final lesson of this story is this. God has determined that the latecomers in his kingdom will enjoy full gospel privileges with the old timers. Oh boy. Those workers sent into the vineyard in the last hour received as much money as those who had been harvesting since morning. This is the doctrine of adoption as taught in the scriptures. Paul in Galatians 3 and verse 4 describes the believer's condition as a sinner under the law. He's a slave to sin. But when the time had fully come, writes Paul, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive, get it now, the full rights of, of sons. Wow. Hey, but we're not sons. We're not daughters. Yeah, but in Christ, God has determined, he's just like this landowner, I'm going to bless you with the same 
blessings that come to my sons and daughters. Paul goes on, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, meaning father. So you are no longer slaves, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you his heir. Brethren, just think about this. This is a landowner. Saying to the latecomers, I'm going to bless you with the same blessings as those that have borne the heat of the day. You're going to get the full rights of sons. So, he goes on, Paul goes on, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Ephesians 1.4 states it this way, In love God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Wow. To the praise of his glorious grace. Adoption in the New Testament sense means much more than how Americans envision adoption in our day. In our day, adoption is viewed as a way for childless couples to have children. If you were to check with any adoption agency, you would discover that what most couples are looking for in an adopted child is what? What do you think? A baby. A baby. When I worked for the bus company, my boss, along with his wife, had waited three years after being approved by their adoption agency because they wanted a son, a baby. Adoptive parents generally are not thinking of an heir when they adopt, nor are they thinking of a person upon whom they will bestow full adult privileges. They are thinking of adoption in the sense of children, little folk, who enter their families and grow into adult status just like all of our natural-born children do. That's what they're thinking about. Children do not have the same rank and privilege that adults do. Because of their age, there are limitations placed upon them in terms of their freedom, the friends that they may foster the clothes that they may wear, the food that they may eat, the movies that they may see, 
how late they may stay up at night. That goes on and on and on. They are restricted from driving automobiles until a certain age, from drinking until a certain age, from voting until a certain age, from working full time until a certain age. They must go to school until a certain age. They must be in and off the streets until a certain age. They must have co-signers on loans until a certain age. And they must acquiesce to those in authority over them. These restrictions are placed upon them because of their immaturity. Their lack of experience and knowledge. In other words, because they are children. None of this, none of this applies to New Testament time adoptions. In the Roman society of New Testament days, adoption granted adult status and full heir status to the adopted party. Such adoptions were made of adults as well as of children. In the movie Ben-Hur, when Judah Ben-Hur saved the life of the captain of the ship in which he was a galley slave chained to an oar, that captain, in appreciation for Judah's bravery, adopted him into his family. And immediately the criminal sentence which had landed Judah in the galley was revoked. His filthy garments were replaced with royal robes. He was granted the captain's family signet ring and became full heir to all of that man's house and fortune. There was no growing up into these privileges. No, instantly, overnight, Ben-Hur went from being a galley slave in the stinking hold of a ship to the son of a Roman admiral who had considerable wealth and influence in Rome. The New Testament adoption into God's family follows this pattern. We who were slaves in sin were predestined by God to be adopted into his family by his will. And at the right time, God sent his son to make all of the redemptive requirements necessary to free us from the curse of our own sin. And that being completed, we were made God's sons and named as his heirs right alongside of his beloved son, Jesus. Can you grasp it? In fact, God sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts with the result that God is as much our father as he is the father of our blessed Lord. Did not Jesus teach us to pray? Our father, who art in heaven, 
holy be your name. Every privilege afforded adult sons is the possession of every child of God. It doesn't matter if you are a latecomer, like these 11th hour workers in the vineyard. It doesn't matter that you were only saved last week or last year. It doesn't matter that your knowledge of spiritual things lags behind those brothers and sisters in Christ who have been studying the Bible for years. It doesn't matter that your faith is small, your fears large. None of these things matter. None of them change your status one iota as to rank and privilege in the kingdom of God you are rated a one denarius worker the same as those who have been in the king's vineyard for years Paul puts it this way Galatians 3 you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, verse 26 and following. Brethren, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Adoption guarantees that the last will be first and the first will be last. And this is the gospel. Jesus preached. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Mankind seldom sees in our own humanity men and women like this kind of character. You allot to the last guy coming in who hasn't even worked a full day You've allotted to him the full rights of sons. That's our great joy. It reminds us that it's all of grace. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. God being merciful to whom he wants to be merciful. And he can do it. The vineyard belongs to him. The money belongs to him. He may do with it as he wants. I pray that we'll see that. And that being the case, we're going to find another master like that. The world doesn't, isn't like that. The world will gobble us up. It'll hate us as it hates God. But that's okay because God cares for us. And he will see to it that we all make it to glory if we come by faith in Christ.
Lord, grant us that faith that we don't have, that repentance that we don't want to do with regard to our sin. It doesn't matter if we're coming into the kingdom as a late-time worker. You will exalt us and raise us up to the same place as those first-come workers. And Lord, we'll love you for it and be appreciative to the end by your grace. Grant us this. Our world needs to understand grace, and it doesn't. It only talks about their rights. Well, you owe me. No, God, you don't owe us anything except justice. And if we get justice, it's not a pretty picture. Justice demands the wages of sin have to be paid for. And if we have a savior, then we have a go-between. We have a stand-in. But if we do not have Jesus, we're on our own. And that's a scary place to be. Lord, bless the truth to our hearts. Thank you for Christ and his sacrifice. He came to earth knowing what his job was going to be. And it wasn't going to be pleasant. But it was necessary. Help us to be appreciative in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 433. Is that from the Brown Hymnal?
beauty of the gospel is that salvation is a prayer away. It's a prayer away. If you've learned anything from today's message, it isn't doing, acting, working in the vineyard, getting the crop in. And then God says, oh, great, you can come into my kingdom. It's none of that. It's, it's faith, trusting. And the landowner to be merciful. And gracious to pay the latecomers the same as the first comers. We need to trust Him. Why would God send His Son to earth knowing He was coming to a cross if there were? some other way for God to be merciful and at the same time just. You see, you can't, you can't take it, pick and choose just certain characteristic traits from God and say, well, if he loves me, that's all. No, he's got to be faithful. He's got to be just. Well, what's just? I have sin. How's he going to deal with my sin? Well, you know, we all just forget about it. No, no, that's not faithful. That's not justice. Don't we have a gripe against judges who in court cases excuse people that they know have even been caught in the very act of their sin, but they dismiss them? There's a lot of that going on in our country, by the way. There's no justice in that. God isn't going to do that. He is going to punish sinners with the results of their lifestyle. Unless they will come to Christ and allow him to take the punishment for them. A step in. 
a substitute. That's our Savior. No one added to us his arm. Not even God the Father. No harangment of his son to get him to that. The son volunteered. You can read about it in John chapter 4. Who does something like that? The God who loves us, that's who does it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. What a wonderful Savior you are. You left glory and all the wonder is surrounding your throne and your rule to become treated as a criminal, crucified on a cross, hated and despised. The wrath of your justice fell upon him because he was taking our sins for us. And if we will trust him, if we will accept his work as if it had been our work, then the slate is wiped clean and we're forgiven. I pray that we'll do that. That one here this morning that, you know, they're, they're in the vineyard and they're working, they're, they're, they're trying to make a deal with God. I'll just make this deal. But they'll never be able to match his standard. Only one is able to match his standard, and that was his own beloved son. All the rest were our work is just wood, hay, and stubble. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice, and we pray that you will work in the hearts of unbelievers today draw them sufficiently to you may you get the glory in Christ's name Amen Remember there is no service tonight I was going to say a word about Jared so let me say it now Jared has an aneurysm in the heart in the artery of the heart you all know a little bit about biology. I'm sure you understand that the uh, artery of the heart, the aorta, is the main blood supply to the entire body. An aneurysm is a weakness in the vessel itself that can burst when under any kind of stress. So he is limited in what he can do, what he can lift, how much work he can do. He has to come home and get sleep, extra sleep. He goes to bed early, gets up early. But there are limitations as to what he can do and not do. And so, we, of course, we are praying for him and so forth. But he was our main teacher on Sunday nights. So we're canning Sunday night until we have really indications that he's going to be doing better. Where he is now, Jared has to find. He's been given a list of uh, cardiologists, experts, 
not just the run-of-the-mill cardiologist, but those that specialize in this kind of dangerous surgery. Um, Dan's brother works, our Dan's brother works with some of these expert cardiologists at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And so Jared has been referred to them, and I think there's one guy over in Flint also referred to. Jared has to um, choose where he's going to go, but he has to undergo a lot of tests. They did this with my kidney. They don't just say, oh, here we got a new kidney for you. Come and we'll put it in you. No. They threw weeks of tests. Oh, is it compatible? Is it the right thing? You know, how long will it be? How old is the guy getting this? On and on and on and on it goes. And Jared will have to go through all of that testing, which is tiring in itself. And so I hope you'll keep him in prayer. But that's where we're at, and that's why our evening services is canceled. Uh, because he's our teacher, and he needs to have this time to recoup, get his strength up. So you can be praying that he will find the right cardiologist and um, be able to pass. you got to pass the test in order to get the surgery. So he's not out of the woods. I think we'll pray for him right now, shall we? George, would you lead us? And God's people said, Amen. We are dismissed.